Right, hello, welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. As always hosting, my name is Dan, and today we've got Paul. Good evening, Dan. And Khan has passed a late fitness test. Hello, pleased to be here. Yeah, nice to have you back, Khan, after uh, a week off. Thank you. International duty is what we... Yeah, exactly. We, we could have termed it. Um, <laughs> I, I really... I've been sat watching and waiting all weekend, hoping that something else vaguely contentious might happen in the Premier League this weekend. But um, whilst there's been plenty of late goals, there's only one place we can start, and that was the um, the Merseyside derby, which was the first game of the weekend. Um, and where we start with that, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know where to start. I'm a bit of a loss for words, to be honest. Um I would be interested to see my blood pressure reading um, because after about six minutes onwards, um, I I think it was borderline dangerous how angry I was getting. And as the half went on, even though Liverpool played really well, I was getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And by the time the game finished, I was just a maelstrom of hatred. Um, (laughs) Did did I give you a chance to watch it? I did. I, I, I watched the whole game, Dan. I actually, um, I thought it was a really entertaining kind of, you know, start to the weekend from a from a neutral's perspective in terms of, you know, the first Premier League game on the docket, as it were. And we didn't have to wait long for the action, did we? So it was it, it was certainly an entertaining watch. Um, and I'm sure we'll get on to some of the some of the incidents shortly. Uh, I thought before we get on to the incidents, I thought overall um, Liverpool played pretty well. There are still some gremlins there for them, even even without the injuries defensively. Um, and, and the first goal came from the, the high line that you were lambasting a couple of weeks ago, Dan, which led to a save, which led to a corner from which from which they scored. Um, but I thought Liverpool then got, got right back at it and, and, and kind of got on top of the game again. And uh, Everton probably had a little five-minute spell in the second half around their second equaliser where I thought they looked dangerous. Um, and I think the frustration for Liverpool, quite apart from the other frustrations that we'll come on to, will be that they didn't ride that little spell out because it really wasn't a long spell. It was five, ten minutes at most where I thought Everton had their tails up. And I think had Liverpool ridden that out, they'd have, they'd have gone on to win quite comfortably. Um, I, I will also, just before we, we move on to the contentious issues, I've criticised Calvert-Lewin for every finish he's, every goal he scored being a sort of scruff, scruffy, scrappy finish um, so it's only right that I give him credit for his goal on, on Saturday morning I thought it was a well, Saturday lunchtime I thought it was a terrific header Textbook header, did you get yeah. to watch it Cam? Uh, I did, yes um, I mean I think Paul covered it quite well really as a, as a relative neutral it was very very entertaining you know, lots lots of incidents, some good goals um, so it's a good, good derby game and uh, you know, one of those games that actually didn't, one of those games where in particular it was a shame there wasn't a crowd there. Um, but but also, as I suppose there is with every game, but particularly on, on sort of big derby games, but but also one that was played at a level where it felt like there was. Yeah, um, you I, know, it, I it, agree. It, it didn't feel like one of those games that was like training or, or practice, as, you, as your man over the pond calls it. You know, it did feel like a proper so. And, and I think maybe this is something perhaps come on to later because I think it seemed to be a bit of a theme this weekend, which I think is, is on the agenda later on. So I won't I won't jump into that now. But I think certainly this game, it was played like a proper a proper derby game. And it, it felt like there was, um, you know, sort of 30, 40,000 people. I'm not sure what the capacity of uh, Goodison is, but um, 
too hey, it did fit. <laughs> um but yeah it did it did feel like a proper derby game and so yeah very very enjoyable from a neutral but then you know equally there were some there were some incidents that were perhaps uh a bit less savory um which i'm sure dan you're going to tell us all about now <laughs> well I, I i agree with what you both said it was kind of the best and the worst of merseyside derbies rolled into one um it was a i i, I can look back on a game that's had me on edge and say oh that was a great game of football you know like both the newcastle four threes i was there so you know I, I can appreciate a good game looking back but the problem i had with the game it was the worst of the merseyside derbies um, that tackle from Rich Arlison was absolutely ridiculous. Now he got sent off. Not yep. not many people are talking about that because you know, like punishment was meted out, and it looks as though thankfully Thiago's um, escaped serious injury. Um, but that was a ridiculous tackle. There was no need for it, and it it was really X-rated. You you may both obviously because you pay closer attention to your own team than I would. I don't recall seeing many tackles worse than that in the Premier League. I thought it was an absolutely shocking tackle. It was. It was. I, 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 it kind of came from nowhere as well. I don't, you know... It's just a loose ball a his, in midfield. It was just, yeah, yeah, there is a history, though, in Merseyside derbies. Even, you know, and we, we were just joking before we came on air about Tony, Tony Pulis talking about players from abroad, like it's still an exception rather than the rule <laughs> on, uh, on Soccer Saturday on Saturday afternoon. But the Merseyside derby is one of those games that even now there are very few scousers from either side that play in it has a history of some dreadful tackles from 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 both sides uh, in the games over the years and and that Richarlison one was as you say Dan was right up there with with some of the worst that you know uh, it was a shocking challenge um he was rightfully sent off uh and and you're right that I think from what from what has been reported it looks as though Thiago will miss the week uh, the midweek game in Europe and, and might miss next weekend but should be pretty much good to go after that the sort of saying 10 days or so which which is a, a big relief because um when when he came off at the end of the game and uh and Klopp was interviewed and I know obviously emotions were running high Klopp said he, that their, their fear was that that was bad as well and um luckily it wasn't because uh Thiago's a terrific player, and we'll maybe touch on that in a minute when we get to the disallowed goal. But uh, yeah, pleased to see him avoid major injury, but it was a horrible challenge. And with Rich Allison as well, you know, like he had the temerity to number one roll around on the floor like he'd been injured, and number two, he stood there snarling. I mean, it's just how he's just a snarling so and so. I think he's a pretty good player. I, I, I would have had him when he left Watford, but just. Shut your pie hole, man. Just walk off the field. You've just put in a leg breaker, and he's very lucky that he's, he's going to be a three game ban. I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, it will yeah. be, yeah. He's very lucky that it's not going to be more. Um, the, but the, the tackle which everyone's talking about is, is Jordan Pitt. He's another one who just snarls and growls at the world like it owes him something. You're not very good. And it's not the. F- I don't remember who he did it to. He's done something like this to someone else. He's wiped someone out big time in this kind of situation where, oh well, he's offside and he's given penalties away where he's done it as well. You know, like it was so needless and unnecessary. I mean, I'm obviously frustrated because Van Dyke's so important to the way we play. I do think there is potentially 
you know, I think we can be okay without him if we can get through to January and bring in reinforcements, because both Joe Gomez and Joel Matip are both very good players. But Matip had a scan himself on Saturday that came out this morning because he felt something. Um, so already we're looking at him potentially not playing on Tuesday because uh, on Wednesday, sorry, because we need to think about the weekend. It's we're in a position where. I did. I don't like to say that I'm, I told you so, but I was highlighting before the window closed that I think we need another centre forward, and so it's proven to be centre half. Dan, you mean? I do mean a centre a centre half. You're quite right. I mean, I mean, you could buy a centre forward as well, but I'm not sure he'd. I'm not sure he'd make any difference to the Van Dijk situation. No, 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 no. Um, I think, I think as well, Dan. You have mentioned before that, and you touched on it there that Matip and Gomez are both relatively injury prone. They are. Themselves. They're both very injury prone. Um, yeah. So it's and whereas Van Dijk isn't actually, unless someone comes flying at him like a helicopter. Um, so it it is uh, obviously slightly. Sort of bitterly ironic that it's uh, that it's actually Van Dyke that gets the really serious long-term injury, but then it does mean that uh, you know you really have to hope that the other two, who you presume will be your first-choice partnership now, can actually try and stay fit and not get the sort of niggly injuries that keeps them out for a few weeks at a time. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll obviously have to wait and see. I mean, what what are realistically then the, the options? Does someone drop back into defence because you do have quite a lot of midfielders? Um, does does James Mil- does James Milner find another another utility element of his Swiss Army knife to uh, to sort of fill in there, or who who sort of fills in the gap if uh, if Matip or Gomez uh, is unavailable? It's going to be Fabinho. Fabinho will play centre half on Tuesday. There's a lot to be said for it. Um, you know, he's great on the ball. Uh, he's very he played there at, tall. He and he played, played there at Chelsea, Bridge. didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he played that, there at Chelsea and did okay, I thought. That's right. Um, Failing fail that, and there are going to be some games where I want to see Fabinho in midfield, because that's what he does mm. best. Um, it's going to be uh, Seth van der Berg, who doesn't look confident enough to me, and he doesn't look, like he, he doesn't, doesn't look to me like he believes he belongs on the pitch. Um, and Reese. Williams, who played against uh, Arsenal, Paul in that Carling Cup game, thought he had a pretty good, good um, performance. But it is only the um, the Carling Fizzy Pot Pointless Cup. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think my concern, uh, and and Con's just mentioned it, and you've mentioned it before, Dan, is that the Matip and Gomez do tend to pick up niggles. little niggles themselves. My other concern with them is that. I think both of them are sort of second centre-halves in the sense that I don't see either of them as a really commanding figure. Um, And I think, you know, Matip has certainly been a lot better uh, since um, Liverpool brought uh, Van Dijk in. If you remember back to that first season at at Liverpool when when Matip was almost asked at times to be the lead centre-half, and I think he did find that more difficult. So I think... um, for my money, the, the other concern would be, is there a real commander and a leader and an organiser among the two? Because the one thing Van Dijk brought almost instantly to Liverpool when they signed him in that in that January window was a voice at the back. He is yes. an old school centre-half who shouts and talks and organises the people around him. And he just has that presence. And I'm not sure with... Again, I, I think... Gomez is a very fine centre-half. I think Matty put his best is very good. I think he's a little inconsistent. Albeit, you know, I suppose you'd say Gomez had that shocker at Villa as well. Um, so, so they can both play. That's not the issue. The issue, I think, is, is keeping them fit. 
making sure that with the number of games Liverpool have got between now and January, they can rotate and use Fabinho there at the right times to give one or other of them a break. But also just Fabinho may give them a bit more of that sort of leadership when he drops back in there. I think he's a bit more of a natural um, presence than either than either Gomez or, or Matip, who, who, as I say, are both fine centre-halves as it goes. Not sure they're quite the same character that, that, that Virgil van Dijk is. But I think, you know, look, what it means for Liverpool is, is one element and what it means for the title race. But I think we do need to talk about why on earth is it not ascending off? Um, I can kind of summarise it briefly, although it's going to require more discussion. David Coote is a confounded <laughs> cretin. <laughs> I can understand Michael Oliver missing it because he's a distance away, but he's still got a decent enough view. I mean, it all comes down to the offside, doesn't it? I, I do think that David Coote is incompetent, incompetent enough to not think that that's a red card. It, it, it clearly is. He's completely wiped him out. And for me, I might get some flat for this. I, I think that Pickford is... Do, do you remember, Paul, how Neil Morpé left something on Burn Leno on purpose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I genuinely think the way he hooked his leg around, I think he's meant to hurt Van Dijk. I don't mean. I, I don't think he's meant to, to basically tear his knee off, which is what's happened. Yeah, but yeah. I believe he's meant to hurt him and make him stay hurt. And he was offside by a sleeve. I'm not convinced it was offside either. I don't think so, either so, of the offsides were offside in this game. So I think that my question would be, if when they looked at it, Van Dijk was onside, what decision were they going to give? A goal kick, probably. Because <laughs> that's, I mean, I, I don't know if you, what, what you thought, Con, but if... To me, if Van Dijk is onside and you're going to give a penalty and a red card, then fair enough, you, you don't give the penalty because he's offside. But there's no reason you can't still give the red card. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't sort of, yeah, I don't understand the situation any better, <laughs> any better than anyone else. Um, it does, it does seem bizarre that when something happens, you know, as as plain as day, that 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 everyone can see why we have to almost get sort of hung up in this sort of red tape situation of, Oh, well, it wasn't this, so it can't be that or whatever. Like if it's, if it's sort of violent conduct uh, as it clearly is, then surely it should be addressed in that way, regardless. And particularly now that we have the technology for these, you know, clear, you know, something that is, you know, the word clear and obvious get used. I mean, this is as clear and obvious as it gets. So if we brought the technology in, to, to sort of mop up things like this. What, why isn't it being used exactly in this situation um, instead of for some of the more ridiculous things that it does get used for for minutes on end um, ah. that, that frustrate fans, you know, and whereas something like this that, that's just obvious, I'm sure people were um, not even necessarily Liverpool fans were sort of, you know, screaming at the TVs of, of why that could, uh, why that couldn't get dealt with is, is just seemingly brushed under the carpet and, you know, nothing to see here. Move on. It's it's very it's very bizarre. I, at first, I thought, well, they, they, there must be some reason that they haven't looked at that. They've decided the offside's decision and said so. We can't look at anything else. Which, even if that was the case, would be bizarre, ridiculous. But but from what was reported in the Athletic on Saturday afternoon, the VAR did look at it and decide it wasn't a red card. And that's where David Coote comes in. 
<laughs> and, and this I is mean, frustrating. If that's me. not a red card, what is? Exactly. Yeah. It's just a flagrant red card. It's just it's as simple as that. From what frustrates me about the whole thing, I mean, yeah, it's difficult to take because Virgil van Dijk's gone for probably about nine months. That's tough to take, but I've always squawked about referees. Win, lose or draw, you, you can't take that away from me, surely. It's not just a results thing. I'll complain about them irrespective because they're not very good. But David Coote should be refereeing leak CSOB this weekend. <laughs> he won't be. He'll be sat in... He'll be either doing a Premier League match or he'll be a fourth official or he'll be terrifyingly in the VAR booth again. And that's what frustrates me. There's no accountability. He will continue to go on. And I, I, obviously, it's not his fault that Virgil van Dijk got injured. But no, no, no. For, for Liverpool to not go on and win that game, which would have kind of... you know, like we've, we've dropped two points and I think we deserved all three. And if we go back to the VAR goal, that's the, the, the goal that VAR disallowed, should I say, that, yeah. that to me, again, is... If Van Dijk is offside by a sleeve, then Mane was on by a sleeve. It's just... I want to watch football. I don't. I left trigonometry behind when I left school when I was sixteen. <laughs> you know, come, come on. Like, I don't think either of them was offside. I thought they were both onside. I'm... So I, I, I'd have to look at the Van Dyke one again. But I, I, I was bemused by the second one. And of course, like that would have been a little bit of justice on Pickford, who tantamount to threw the, the ball into his own net again. Um, Really, I don't want Jordan Pitford suspended, to be honest, because I think he's more of a hindrance to Everton than he is a help. But, yeah, um, tough to take. I've been as fair about it as I can. It was a, a good I, game. And the, my, my view with the offsides on VAR, and, and I've had disagreements with some of my friends about this, because they say, well, offsides, you either are or you aren't. There's no grey area in offside. And I think that's nonsense. Um, Sadio Mane, as far as I could see, his elbow was ahead of the defender. Well, he can't score with his elbow, so that seems to me to be entirely irrelevant. I couldn't see a part of his body that he could legitimately play the ball with that was ahead of the defender. So I didn't I didn't understand what the, you know, what the issue was. I I I think so there are narrow offsides and and it's interesting to compare that goal to the 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 Crystal Palace one yesterday. The, the Batshuayi goal that was disallowed. And and that was a tight decision. But as soon as they put it up on the screen and look across the line, I don't need them to bring the little, the little you know, graphics out and the little dotted lines out. I could see, as soon as you look across the line at that, it's narrow, but Batshuayi is just offside. Now, I don't think there should be a margin for error there. That, that to me, is offside, and the goal was rightly disallowed. When I look at the Liverpool one, I, I look across the line at that, and until they start bringing out the dotted lines, I can't see that that's offside. And if, the, if once you're in that position, I think the, the, the decision on the pitch surely has to stand. If you look at that, and the lino during the game has thrown their flag in the air. I'm more than happy for them to say that's not a goal. But the linesman's kept their flag down. 
the goal seems to be standing, and then we look at it, and we get these ridiculous lines out. And as soon as, as, soon as that happened, Dan, I knew what was going to happen. Yep. I've never seen them bring those lines out and then decide it's still a goal. I can remember once, it was um, it was against Manchester United, actually, Ruben Neves. Okay. It was early in the season. You, you might remember it calm. That had a, a good four or five minute decision um, delay. I can't off the top of my head, but I'll, I'll take your word for it, Dan. <laughs> um, Neves long ranger was someone offside eight phases beforehand from a corner. Oh, that might ring a bell, yeah. So, so it was a baffling decision. Yeah, and, I and mean, a baffling performance. Uh, consistent with the way they've been doing it, in fairness, I still go back to that Shefki Puki one for, for Norwich against Spurs last Christmas time. Where they got the you know the little dotty lines out and worked out that his his little finger on his right hand was offside, um, so it is at least consistent with the way they've been using the technology. But I thought what they said over the the, the sort of very limited off season that we had was, oh, we're not going to be quite as ridiculous about it on offsides, and and we're not going to get the silly dotted lines out every time. Um, I just, I yeah, I. If that's going to be disallowed, I mean, yeah, it just seems ridiculous to me. And like I say, I, I am not saying give goals that are offside because the Crystal Palace one, very, very narrow. But when you look across the line, you go, OK, he's just ahead of the defender. That's offside. Um, it's tight. It's difficult to see with the naked eye. But we've got the technology. We look at it and we go, yeah, he's just ahead. That, that's got to be disallowed. Um, but nobody looking at the still of the Liverpool goal looked at it and thought offside there until they get the silly dotted line out. And as well, of course, when when you're watching the game and when you when you're at a game in particular, you you, you see an attack building and you you look to the to the referee or the linesman because you know it's close. I, I didn't think that was close. It, it no. is but you, you sometimes you, you just get a sense of that that was close. That one. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I fully expected the goal to stand, and I think everyone did. And <laughs> but there you go. Yeah, it was it was that kind of uh, of game. It it was. Uh, I'm sure you can appreciate. I, I found it very difficult to to keep cool and level headed because you know, I, I I wasn't. I still am furious, but. Um, the positives I took out there were a lot of positives I thought Liverpool played really well I think we we looked back to our old selves and we just need to to move forward now without Van Dijk and hope we'll, when the goalkeeper comes back which will hopefully be two weeks um, things might settle down in front of him a little bit until then we need to go uh, a bit of Jurgen Klopp 2017 about it so we might start with win games 4-3 or uh, five four as we did at Norwich one time. You know, it could be a return to that that style of football because we have the goals in us to do so. Um, we also have Adrian in goal, so <laughs> any score line is possible. I'm just and gonna... just before just before we move off that game, Dan, because I, I I don't think it's got enough credit. It was another fantastic strike by Mohamed Salah for the the, the second oh, goal. Yeah, for someone. Yeah, who, it was a great goal for someone who all too often hits a pass back. Um, you know, it, it was a, a really sweetly struck shot. But what I will say is that um, so far, so good for Mo Salah. He really looks in the mood 
to reclaim the golden boot that he's lost because he's had um, you know, he's been up there. I think he, he he's won it by himself and he was joint with Harry Kane last year, wasn't he? Uh, the, the year before last, sorry. Um, he's been, he was joint with he was joint with Aubameyang the year before last. Sorry, it was Aubameyang. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he looks on it and up for it. So hopefully there's not a game coming up where um, David Coote's on VAR <laughs> um, for him to get wiped out. Uh, but it's all right. If if he's offside, it doesn't matter, does it? Absolute nonsense. Um, I mean, it would change the way you played defence, though, wouldn't it? If you thought if someone's offside, you get a free shot at them. Yeah, it, well, yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> but I, I want to watch football, not Mad Max. <laughs> um, talk about the Thunderdome. It's one thing I'm just going to step out from my agenda for one second. Um, I, I noticed that um, the pay-per-view game of the day was um, West Brom against Burnley and that finished nil-nil to no one's surprise. Uh, I just want to, to pay tribute to Newcastle fans actually for um, their charitable donation. They raised £20,000 for, I believe it was a local food bank. Um, instead of paying out for the the game against Manchester United, I think that's a, yeah. a lovely idea. I agree, Dan. I think it was it's a, a really good idea. Um, that uh, that pay per view that's finished nil nil. Do you want to start about it? Um, I, I, I can imagine. I, I've got a feeling that Mark Hughes might be sharpening up his pencil for his CV <laughs> for when um, Slaven <laughs> inevitably loses his job, but. Um, I believe that that is the first nil-nil since it is. the restart. It is, you're right. That's, that's quite right, yeah. So well worth your fourteen ninety-five if you pay <laughs> it. I'm sure it was a defensive masterclass, though, from Burnley, so, you know. <laughs> well, it, it's not a bad result for Burnley, really, is it? Because they've, they've been conceding well, it's, it's, goals. And... It's their first point, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. So, uh, yeah. But yeah, equally, you know, both of those teams, they both could have done with a win, given that, you know, Burnley are looking like they're going to be spending a bit of time at the, the wrong end of the table. And we've already mentioned how West Brom are in, in for long season. So it's one of those, it doesn't really help either team. No, a bit so. like, and, and I think we're going to touch on this next, a bit like Sheffield United and, and Fulham yesterday drew one mm. all, and you sort of think yeah. it doesn't help anybody. Um, and, and I think that brought us on to our next theme, Dan, which was the number of late goals. I mean, we've had the, the non-late goal for Liverpool at Everton, mm. but there were a lot of late goals this weekend. Yeah, um, uh, watching the, 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 the Tottenham game, there was almost, it was, it was strange. When it got to 3-2, there was almost a sense of inevitability that it was going to finish 3-3. Well, there's a clue in the sentence there, Dan. And just, there's, a, there's a magic word beginning with a T that means it's inevitable. Yeah, the um, I'd actually so I watched the first half of the game and then I switched over and stuck the NFL on, and I was looking at my one of my WhatsApp groups and and one of my friends who, admittedly, is an Arsenal fan, said with about 20 minutes to go, if West Ham get one, Spurs will get nervous here, um, and I wasn't watching the game by that point, and when when West Ham did get one with, I think it was about eight minutes to go, wasn't there, when, when Balbuena scored. Um, I thought, you know what, I'll just, fl-. thinking about what my friend had said, I thought, I'll just flick it on for the last ten minutes, um, which was well worth watching. Uh, and yeah, there was a sort of a, a bit of a sense of inevitability. I thought especially when Bale missed that chance at the start of injury time. Because I thought he's got to score there, he's come inside, he's done everything right, and then he just fluffs his finish. 
And I thought at that point, like, that should have been the game. That should have been, okay, you can relax now. Nerves gone. 4-2, Spurs win. Um, but having said that, what a goal from Lanzini. It was, but one thing I'm going to say, I'm going to be a bit controversial here. Does Lloris go with his wrong hand? Because I thought he did. Mm, possibly, because he goes very with the easy top to hand, say that. It, it, it's very easy to say that watching on the TV, but for me, if he goes with the other hand, I, I think he can save that. I'm not taking anything away from Lanzini. Well, I am. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I, I'm not taking too much away from Lanzini because it was a terrific strike and um, it, it wasn't lost on me that he got more punishment in scoring a goal than Jordan Pickford did tearing someone's knee off. Did he get booked for taking his shirt off? He took off? his shirt off, didn't he? So, um, right, he did, okay. yeah. Yes. I mean, what was great about it is, is he clearly intended it. Yes, he did, clearly, yeah. Mm. He, he, he yeah. actually, you can see when, when you see that sort of front-on view, he cuts across the ball, and his intention is, I'm going to try and spin this away from Lurries and into that far-top corner. It was one hell of a strike. Um, and actually, if there was a disappointment in it all for me, Dan, it was that... Um, I thought Jose's press conference afterwards was going to be fireworks, and he was very measured, uh, unlike Jose. So um, I was waiting for the kind of explosion to the interviewer, but uh, I thought he was very magnanimous. Spurs are a strange team, aren't they? They, You know, we look at that game earlier in the season against Southampton where I thought they were dreadful for 45 minutes, equalised right on the stroke of half-time, and then with different class second half. You look at that game on Sunday where I thought they were different class for, for certainly the first half hour. West Ham, frankly, couldn't touch the ball, let alone get in the game. Um, and then they end up drawing the game 3-3. And I think uh, they played three, draw, uh, played three, lost one and drawn two at home, uh, which when you look over the last decade almost, Spurs' home record has really been been pretty exceptional. So... Um, they're a strange team, but but that was obviously the most dramatic uh, comeback of the weekend because it was it was three in in eight minutes plus added time. But there were lots and lots of games that went right down to the wire and and teams nick points at the end. And Kepa, and Kepa was back to his uh, his usual fine fettle. <laughs> yeah, well, Kepa was back in goal for Chelsea, so obviously he threw one in. Um, and uh, and Southampton, you know, again that that game they nicked a. A point, much to the amazement of Tim Sherwood, who, if anyone was watching Soccer Saturday, <laughs> must have said about 20 times during the game, there's no way Southampton can get a result here because Chelsea have got better players, which is definitely the way football works, Tim. There's yeah. no point ever playing the games. Yeah, I think there's a reason he's got a headset on on a Saturday afternoon instead of being on the touchline, isn't there? He's got, he's got a headset on, but not his g <laughs> Um well, one thing I would like to say about Southampton, um, just just two words, Daniel Ings, what a yeah, player on fire, on fire, mm. and 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 I think you know you have to give. We've we talked about um, Hassan Hudel before on this on this podcast, and um, I think you have to give him great credit. He went to Chelsea, played four four two, and his two wide players were not central midfielders who took in. It was Nathan Redmond and Theo Walcott. And I think, you know, the old-fashioned way of you play four four two away from home and your two wingers are, are out-and-out wide players who want to, you've got pace and want to get at people and want to get the ball in the box. Um, I have great credit to him, and he's, he's come away with a good point there. I know at the moment you can look at him and say, well, Chelsea are vulnerable, so you, you'd have a go at them rather than let them come on to you. But I think great credit to Southampton. 
Yeah, and they, they won at Stamford Bridge last year as well, didn't they? I think they did, yeah, yeah that rings yeah. a bell. Um, so it's not like it's um, a freak result or anything. And, uh, of course, the thing you do when you play Chelsea is you attack them because they're, they, they are still prone to conceding goals. They didn't address the the defensive problems before the um, the window shut. Although they, they tried to, obviously, they brought Thiago um, Silva in. But um, that's not addressed the, sl- the sliders. No, it, lo- it looks like they'll be playing to their strengths probably in a similar way to Liverpool in that their their new new strikers up front seem to click um and get their first first goals of of, of the season um in that game Dan so uh looks like we're still going to see a few more of these uh, high scoring games perhaps not ones involving uh, West Brom or Burnley but um, <laughs> but certainly involving the bigger clubs I think you know you look around and you think well yeah Chelsea's strength in attack Liverpool's definitely is um, Arsenal seem a bit more balanced this season you know United definitely have the strength at the top so you you, you see that you know, those sort of traditional big six you know City we've talked about you know defending is not the strongest point so you do feel like it's very much going to be well we'll just try and outscore you because <laughs> we can't seem to quite get the right balance um, but yeah it does seem that all, all the big clubs seem to be very sort of top heavy and seem to have focused their investments more in that side and just sort of let uh, you know let the def- let the defenders just get on with it um, and do as good a job as they can um, so I'm sure we'll see a few more of these uh these sort of freak high scores and possibly some more of these comebacks as well. If they are that vulnerable, then as you say, Paul teams will think, well, actually, if we know the ropey at the back, let, let's just go for it. Why not? Particularly if you're away from home and it's normally a game you'd perhaps be expected to lose. You think, well, it's a bit of a freebie, you know, let, let's, let's go for it. Yeah. Um, David Cooch reward for his performance on Saturday, by the way, is leads against Wolves. has just been shown stretching. Don't uh, don't pull your hamstring or anything, David. Whatever you do. <laughs> um, the interesting thing for me is we, we're continental. You know, we're, we're cultured on on this podcast. Um, it's not too often that you see both um, Real Madrid and Barcelona losing the same weekend, but that's what happened this weekend. Yeah, I think it's uh, you know both clubs. It's been well documented. Have gone through gone through troubles over the last couple of years. Obviously, Madrid were in a, a crisis not so long ago, and they had to parachute Zidane back in to to steady the ship after um, after Ronaldo and, and well Ronaldo and him both left, and they were sort of drifting a bit. And then Barcelona, you know, have had a have had a bit of a shocking year by their standards as well. So it's 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 in a way not a huge surprise. Um, Madrid seem to be doing a bit better. Barcelona are still, you know, way down in mid-table. I think they're ninth. Um, so obviously a very poor start by their standards. Of course, it is only a few games in, uh, so there's there's plenty of time. And I'm sure, you know, if we look in, I'm sure when we check back in in Jan, they'll both be, uh, or even sooner than that, possibly they'll they'll both be towards the right end of the table, just because you know they do generally have um, you know better options. But the, the, you know they have had a clear out. Um, Barcelona getting rid of Suarez, perhaps a bit prematurely, um, you know quite shocking seeing Messi actually indicating he wants to leave because he's fed up of how the club's being run. Like there's, there's clearly problems there. Um, but I think what's interesting and, and also a little bit amusing is, you know, that these are these sort of old money clubs who, um, you know, are struggling a bit to find how they stay relevant in sort of changing football. I mean, yes, they're huge sort of brand names. They have huge, you know, global fan bases and so on, but um, now that you've got people coming in at, you know, City and PSG and Leipzig and all these these sort of new, obviously, you know, Chelsea now have, have, have had, you know, wealthy owners for a long time. Um, it, it's difficult for these older clubs 
um, to sort of stay relevant in the marketplace and still be able to attract um, a lot of younger players. You know, they have to rely heavily on their, you know, the sort of trophy cabinets and the history. Um, and, you know, if I was, you know, if you think about if you were a, a young, really top player now and, and Madrid and Barcelona were courting you, you know, I, I think if you had anything about you'd want to know, well, who else are you looking at? Because both of those clubs need more than just one world-class player to sort of sort them out. So you'd want to know, well, actually, what, what are you actually going to do to sort of re- rebuild? Um, because I think that they're, they're both in a, yeah, it's all relative, of course, but they're both in a little bit of a mess by by their own standards, given that Madrid only a couple of years ago were winning their, you know, was it 17th Champions League in, in, a, in a week or something? You know, they, they, they were sort of dominating Europe for, for so long, but then equally didn't look like they were doing anything in the background to sort of replenish the squad. And then when it got to a point where everyone was a bit over the hill and a lot of them left, it turns out there wasn't really much left at the club to sort of pick up the bat on. And, you know, Zidane coming in as managers sort of, again, has steadied it a little bit. But, you know, they're, they're, they look a shadow of themselves. And, and like I say, Barcelona are now sort of well into that cycle as well, I think. Um, and if, you know, if Messi leaves, I think his deal ends next summer. So if you assume he's going to leave, uh, this is his last season there, um, then that's going to truly be an end of an era. You know, after the sort of, you know, the great players they've had over the last 10 or 15 years, Messi is sort of the, will be the last one to leave. Um, and then it really is going to be a you know sort of face facing into the abyss uh, in relative terms. So it'd be very interesting to see what they're planning to do, particularly given in the current environment with with COVID and, and transfers just being a bit a bit strange generally. You know how either club is going to plan to um, you know to try and address that and get themselves back sort of in the mix at the the latter stage of the Champions League, which is where where they both obviously see themselves. Well, both clubs. I've historically spent a lot of money, and I know Barcelona have been particularly hamstrung by um, the redevelopment of the new camp. And if I remember rightly, um, Real Madrid are hamstrung by, I think it might be the training ground, if I remember rightly. Um, so, w- with all that being said, you know, like, like Bar- Barcelona were continually leaking to the press, we-, we want to sign Neymar, we want to sign Neymar. I'm just like, well, how are you going to pay for it? This is the first summer for a while I've not worried that Barcelona are going to try and come and take like one of our forwards because they can't afford him. All our forwards yeah. are on three, four-year contracts, and if if you want them, it doesn't matter how much of a fuss you you, you kick up. You're paying if you if if you're going to try and and get more Salah, two hundred million, and then yeah. we'll start talking. And I, I think. That a lot of clubs in England have that. I mean, bloody hell! Even even Norwich told them to go away for Max Ahrens. You know, like that that would never have happened. That wouldn't have happened two years ago. It, it just feels to me as though um, I think I think you mentioned new new money can. I I I wouldn't describe Liverpool as new money, but someone like Liverpool would pretty much self sustainable. Covid's not really helped with that, but it is a fact. Like. It means that the, 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 it feels to me as though the clubs in England, in particular, are well positioned to wrest kind of like control away from from Barcelona and Real Madrid. Don't know what you think, Paul. So I think there's a few things I think it's a really interesting topic. I um I think the last fifteen years, basically since the sort of mid noughties and maybe even the last twenty years, because you go back to the the first Madrid Galacticos team right at the sort of turn of the century has been an almost unprecedented era of dominance for Real Madrid and Barcelona, not only of 
um, the Spanish league, which they've dominated frequently throughout their history. So that's not that unusual. But but in terms of European cups, in terms of playing in European Cup finals, um, in t- I, I know you know Madrid won the first five, didn't they, or something when it when it first kicked off. But but let's leave that aside because football was a very different place. Not every country was yet signed up to playing in the European Cup. You know, in modern football, the last twenty years have been unprecedented, and not only their dominance on the pitch, but the dominance that those two clubs have had off the pitch in terms of their spending power, in terms of their ability to attract the star players. You know, you look at the last uh, twenty years of the transfer market, and all the top players in the world at whatever time it was, whether it's Rivaldo. Um, whether it was uh, Luis Figo, whether it was Ren- uh, the, you know the, the original Ronaldo, um, the, the Brazilian Ronaldo, um, whether it was Zidane himself, whether it was Ronaldinho, whether it was uh, Cristiano, where, you know, th- th- there's been a generation that Luis Suarez of the top players went and signed for Real Madrid or Barcelona, and it was almost like nobody else got a look in. And when I say nobody else. I include in that the likes of Manchester United and Juventus and Bayern Munich, who are massive, massive football clubs. Um, there was almost like Madrid and Barcelona got first pick and everyone else got what was left. Um, and the result of that has been a huge number of European Cups between the pair of them since since the turn of the century. I think this is going to... I think the balance has tilted back towards a bit more of what we saw in the 1990s, which was that Real Madrid and Barcelona were were good clubs. They were good teams. They made a couple of European Cup finals each. They were competitive. But they weren't the sort of absolute dominant superpowers that they've been in the last 20 years. Um, You know, you think about the original Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo. Barcelona sold him to Inter Milan. You imagine now that the best player in the world plays for Barcelona in the last 15 years and he leaves to go and play for Inter Milan. would have been unthinkable. You know, that Messi in his prime or, or Cristiano in his prime would have left Madrid or Barcelona. I know Ronaldo eventually went to Juventus, but I think everybody, even probably Cristiano, would accept it was past the, the absolute peak of his powers. Um, so I think there's, there's something happening there that's a change. I think part of that is... Uh, regulation and the way the rules are applied in Spain, the tax law in Spain, I think that's that's definitely had an impact. I think that's tilted the financial balance back in favour of particularly the Premier League and to a lesser extent um, Serie A. So I think that there's a, there's a strong element there. But I think what we are seeing in European football at the moment is the strategy clubs are succeeding and the reactionary clubs are failing. Real Madrid and Barcelona, for 20 years, their strategy has been, when we need a player who's the best player, let's go and buy him. That's not the way Liverpool built the team that's just won the Champions League, um, other than maybe Alisson. And I know they paid a huge sum for Van Dijk, but Van Dijk was maybe seen as the best central defender in the Premier League, possibly. He wasn't seen as the best central defender in the world when Liverpool went and bought him. You know, there were some people who wouldn't have said he was the best defender in the Premier League. The only person Liverpool have bought in this team who was an absolute established world top player in his position is probably the goalkeeper. The rest of them came to Liverpool um, 
at a rung below that and have, have developed themselves at Liverpool, whether that's Mo Salah or Sadio Mane or you know whoever else you want to talk about in that team. You look at Manchester City, the whole project to get the squad in place to attract Pep Guardiola was about building a squad of young, hungry players. Um, again, you look at the first great side that City bought, and Yaya Toure and, and Sergio Aguero probably were a bit more in the sort of superstar status when they signed. But Kevin De Bruyne, he'd, he'd failed at Chelsea, done well in Germany, but he wasn't an established world superstar. Raheem Sterling had been a good player at Liverpool, but he's, he's become a better player at, at Manchester City. So it, it's the clubs who are buying with strategy. And you look into Europe and onto the continent and you look at the existing European champions, Bayern Munich have bought with a strategy. Bayern Munich aren't spending more money than everybody else. They've just had a very clear plan. They've identified talented young players. Serge Gnabry is the, the obvious example. Um, wasn't a world superstar. Now, if they sold him, they get four times what they paid for him. The, the, the clubs who are buying with a strategy, the clubs who have a plan in place, the clubs who are executing that plan well, the clubs who are scouting three and four years ahead, bringing players in cheap. You look at the success. I know they're not on the same sphere as the clubs we've just talked about, but Atletico Madrid have had success. Again, their scouting system has been the absolute bedrock of that. Um, they are the clubs that are, that are succeeding and it's going to be increasingly important for some of those old money clubs, if that's what you want to call them, whether it's Real Madrid or Barcelona or Manchester United to have a strategy that can compete with Liverpool. Because until they've got that, that can compete with Bayern Munich, they will continue to fall short on the pitch. The, the old shortcut for those clubs of, yeah, but we can just come and take your best player. It's not as easy as that anymore. And that I think is that I think is where the balance has changed. And I'm sure Calm would agree. There's not much strategy at Manchester United. No, well, well, exactly. I mean, just you know, I think a great a great point you made there, Paul. And yeah, what the one of the other yeah the glaring example as you've just left there is uh, you know we have been Manchester United, I should say, have been the the epitome of, of reactionary for the best part of the last decade. And you know, for all the reasons you just said, that's exactly why they failed in trying to uh, to, to achieve the things they want to achieve. Um, and yeah, and I think there's there's some other, you know, I was thinking like clubs like Leicester and Southampton as well, of, uh, again, at a slightly lower level. But there's a reason that Leicester are around the business end of the table uh, now. And it's because they've had a strategy and they've executed it well and they haven't bought big flashy players, but they're still right up there uh, in the Champions League spots for most of the time. I know they dropped out towards the end last season, but they're overachieving is, is the point. And obviously won the league a few years ago, let's not forget. Um, and, so I think, I think go on, to sorry. be fair to them, Tottenham had it had six or seven years of a really mm. well run, well executed strategy. They're signing young players, the likes of Bale, who they brought from the Championship. Uh, Daily Alley, who I think they signed from. I think Milton Keynes were in League One, weren't they, when they, they signed Alley? Yeah. So you know, Spurs had, had done very well at it. Again, it's gone a little bit wrong there in the last twelve months, and I think um, maybe the plan isn't quite working as well as it did. But uh, the, the 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 super clubs, as they were are not going to just be able to be super anymore by muscling in once another club's done the hard work of identifying and developing the player in quite the same way as they, they used to. Does that mean that if, um, you know, I don't know, let, let's give an example. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that if the young Turkish centre-half at, at Leicester, who I think is now injured, but if he has injured... 
if he yeah if he has another great season like he did last year, that doesn't mean that a Real Madrid or a Barcelona couldn't come and take him from Leicester. Um, if that's what they wanted to do, of course they could. But it is not quite as straightforward as. Well, you know, Liverpool have got great player in Luis Suarez, but Barcelona are just bigger than Liverpool, so they'll buy him. You know, and it happened with Coutinho, and it, it, it happened numerous times to Arsenal when when they had that that great decade under under Wenger at the start, and uh, and Real Madrid and Barcelona try and buy buy our players every summer, and it. it it's not as easy. Um, they're going to have to do some of the hard graft, which means identifying these players when they are not superstars. And identifying, you know, I always give the example of Robert Lewandowski, who's probably been the best centre-forward in Europe for 10 years. Bruce Dortmund found him playing in the Polish League. Paid two and a half million quid for him. I know they then lost him on a free when his contract was up to Bayern, but but the the, the point is that, that that is what the big clubs have to get back to doing. They have to find some of their own stars. Mm. Well, I think, um, I, I, yeah, I completely agree. And I think another example that I wanted to just mention that uh, I, don't, I don't follow uh, Italian football hugely closely because it's difficult to watch any of it these days, but um, over here at least, but... Uh, there was a very good article actually on on the Athletic a few weeks ago about AC Milan um, and about what they're doing behind the scenes to sort of restructure themselves and get themselves, you know, back up to perhaps where where they would normally expect to be in terms of uh, you know winning winning titles and, and trophies and so on. And uh, you know they they looks as though they have executed almost ex- exactly as you've been saying, Paul. Basically, look at looking around at the clubs who are doing well and thinking, well, what are they doing that we're not doing? And have started to reorganise themselves. Um, and they're currently sitting pretty at the top of Serie A after only four games. So I'm not saying they're going to go on and win the league or anything, but clearly they've looked at well, we'd ra- you know we'd rather be a Liverpool than a Man than a Man United if you like in terms of how we're going to execute. Uh, particularly given that Italian football is hamstrung by the lack of money um, that that league has now because it isn't as as popular as certainly the Premier League or even La Liga. So they have to look at well, how can we do more with less and how can we be smarter about things because just being AC Milan isn't isn't enough anymore. Um, and so, you know, clearly their lessons are being learned and they're, they're trying to, um, you know, execute that kind of a plan and, you know, looks as though potentially maybe this is the season where um, where that starts to come to fruition to some degree and gets them back. I think they've been out of the Champions League for something like six years or something ridiculous now. It's it's quite a while, which just seems crazy for a club that, that, that's won it, what, six times uh, or seven times. Seven. <laughs> that seems mad. Yeah. But um, but but again, that's the way it is. You can't just rely on on being your name anymore, as as Paul has as as you know has put very well. You get away with that for one season, maybe two, and mm. then like let's. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not um, sticking the boot in, Cam. You can imagine I am <laughs> doing if you like, but like a point comes with United where it's like right, well, okay, Ferguson's just left, new manager, but they're still a big force. Blah 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 blah. And then that only lasts for a couple of seasons, and it's suddenly like, right, well, um, Atletico Madrid have offered me a new contract. Um, I'd rather stay here. Which, if, if I remember, mm. if I remember correctly, was what happened with Diego Godin. Um, you know, like, yeah, just it's not you know, like Atletico Madrid can offer Champions League football um, on a more regular basis. Could he make more money at United? Due to image rights and, and whatnot, probably, but not all players are motivated by money. No, no absolutely. Bit, and I think 
bizarrely, oh. we have just signed one of Atletico Madrid's best players, which um, does sort of fly a little bit in the face of that theory. But I, from my understanding, and I, I don't know a lot about what happened with Party at Atletico, but there was a, a promise of a new contract that they later reneged on. And I think uh, that was part of the desire by the time they came back to the table to him and said we want to extend you I think his mind was very much made up that um, he was going to move on and of course Atletico Madrid's MO is that they will go and find a superstar in the making in the Portuguese second division or the Brazilian top flight and they will sell that player on for X, Y and Z profit in three years because that's just their business model and for a player through them, it yeah. works well because they they don't get the you know the t the TV money and the sponsorship money that, that the big two get, so they have to be smarter. You know they have to like I say, it's, it's that do we do more with less, right? And 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 can follow that model. And a lot of clubs that that's what you have to do, particularly how in. And I know you covered the, the the sort of the thing that's gone gone by the wayside now around the the, the restructuring uh, over here of the Premier League. But um, you know the way that the deals are done in Europe is very different, and it does does mean that the, the bigger clubs essentially get to dictate the terms. Um, and you know and it isn't as balanced as it is over here, which means that those clubs have to uh, you know have to look at those other tactics. And that's part of the reason why. You know, I mentioned about uh, sort of new and old money. Well, actually, all of the Premier League is new money now because of yeah. you know that's why clubs can say no. That's why Leicester could potentially you know say no to a Barcelona or whatever because actually they are able to pay the the players well um, and put them on long contracts at big money because they they can back it up um, because of the TV money that the Premier League gets. Although I don't know how many people in Singapore or China or the United States are watching Burnley versus West Brom either. <laughs> if it was free, I would have watched it. I would have watched it if it was free. Um... I think you need to pay me the fourteen ninety-five, Dan. <laughs> it's uh, definitely not a, not um, a game to bet on both teams to score. Um, no, and, and we, we give Burnley a bit of stick, and we should say, look, I, I've got a lot of time and a lot of respect for Burnley. We talked about it previously with the fact that, that Sean Dyche has not been given any resources to strengthen the squad. I think they are in for a struggle, but they're a good little club, and, and Sean Dyche is a brilliant manager. Agreed. Um, one thing I wanted to, to just mention on the transfer strategy is... We seem to have forgotten to add that uh, if you're Portuguese, you of course have to sign for Wolves. <laughs> well, is... again, yeah, it, Wolves have had a strategy, haven't they? I know it's been agent-led, and I think that makes all of us a little bit queasy at times. But um, but Wolves have had a strategy, and they've executed their strategy, and they've gone from being a mid-table championship club, who in fact spent a couple of years fighting it out at the top of League One, I think. Certainly one year down at that level. I think Kenny Jacket brought them back, didn't he? Um, so, you know, they've gone from that to being a, a top seven, top eight Premier League team and, and legitimately a top seven, top eight Premier League team. It doesn't feel like a, a fluke that Wolves are where they are. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think, again, they're another club that you can put in that bracket of slightly lower level, but they've had a strategy. And... and Wolves finished above Arsenal last year. That's because in the last five years, Wolves have had a transfer strategy and Arsenal haven't. Yeah, Nuno Holy Ghost is doing a really good job there. Got a lot of time for Wolves. Um, as we kind of get towards the end of, of the weekend, we've had a, a really big variety of things to talk about here. What um, What's caught your eye over the weekend? 
so the other the other game that I wanted to mention, Dan, and we don't often talk on, about Scottish football, and probably we're doing the classic thing of we only pay any attention when it's the old firm game. Um, <laughs> but it, it was a massive three points for Steven Gerrard. Uh, they were already, I think they they went into the game, I think a point ahead of Celtic by having played a game more. So in theory, two points behind. Um, had Celtic won that game and won their game in hand, the gap would already have been five points in a season that there is no other alternative for Glasgow Rangers. They have to win the Scottish Premiership. Everything else this year for Rangers is failure. It's 10 in a row for Celtic. They cannot let it happen. It's win or bust. It was an absolutely massive um three points i uh have watched the the highlights of the game um obviously it was on at the same time as liverpool uh celtic didn't have a shot on target which i think tells you about the the strength of this rangers team which is definitely defensively uh steven gerald's got them extremely well organized they don't have the resources that celtic do but as i say this season is win or bust for gerard and win or bust for rangers um and that was a massive three points now temper the expectation because they went and won at Celtic Park last year if you remember and then fell apart after Christmas um, now there is a long long way to go but I, it, I just had that result been 2-0 to Celtic on Saturday lunchtime I think we'd already be talking about it being a long way back for Rangers Yeah um, it's, a, it's a massive result for them um, Gerard and Rangers seem to grow in confidence and Celtic seem to deteriorate under Neil Lennon on a seemingly weekly basis, from what I can see. Yeah, they've they 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 haven't been great in the, in the you know I don't watch a huge amount of Scottish games, but occasionally I'll flick I'll flick it on, and um, they haven't looked great at the start of this season. But then again, I would say. Celtic hit their straps after Christmas, and they have the last couple of years. Um, so it, it, it isn't necessarily time to panic yet for Celtic. Uh, you know, if they win their game in hand, it, it is back to a very small gap. So there's a long, long way to go. I would still probably, if you told me I had to pick one or the other to do better against the other teams in the Scottish Premier League, I'd probably still pick Celtic, which is why I think those old firm games this season are massive for Rangers. I think they probably have to come out of the old firm games points ahead, if you see what I mean, Dan. You know, over the over the four times they'll play, yeah. if Rangers could win two, draw one, lose one, and come out up over those four games, I think that'd be massive for them. Cam, what caught your eye? Well, I was just going to say, I did. It's actually great that you've brought that up because I did. I did see that result, um, and you know, all I'll say is it's incredibly annoying that it looks like Steven Gerrard is is actually a very good football manager. Um, is my 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 main annoyance, but he has done like uh, what what looks like a really good job there, considering obviously you know Rangers is sort of uh, the reason that it, it's not was it currently nine in a row for Celtic is obviously the sort of checkered sort of decade or so that the Rangers have had. Um but he's, you know, in the in the time he's been there seems to have uh, you know, brought them back to the point where it is like a genuine title race back between them now, um, is a testament to the job that he's done there. So uh, I won't go so far as to say that I necessarily wish him wish him well. <laughs> um and I don't have a particular allegiance to either of the old firms. I'm a genuine neutral. But yeah, he is doing a he is doing a terrific job there. Um the only thing I did notice, and not necessarily a huge story, but um, and I saw you put that you might want to talk about um, 
about some signings as well, Dan. But I, did, I think I did hear that um, that Danny Welbeck's gone to Brighton um, in a sort of very quiet last minute deal, um, the other, you know, over, over the weekend. And, you know, Brighton, again, really struggle with uh, with finishing. You know, I think we saw it at the weekend. We saw it against United when it cost them. Um, so I know Welbeck isn't known for sort of banging in goals every week. Um, so whether he's the answer to the problems, I don't know. But I just thought it's interesting that, that you know, Graham Potter's trying to address that uh, by bringing in some more fire, firepower. And just because I think they're, the, the amount of chances they create is ridiculous. But but the, the sort of finishing stats against that are, are horrendous. Um, so, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if uh, he can be the the extra ingredient that they need to uh, turn some of the, the losses and draws into into wins with a few with a few extra goals for them. I didn't know that that wanted to escape my attention, actually. And mine, Dan, and it's it's really interesting because when Corn said that, my instant reaction was, but they can't do that because the, the transfer window's closed, and that's Premier League to Premier League. And then, of course, I remember Watford got relegated. Um, <laughs> so it's not Premier League to Premier League. You can still do Championship to... Well, you can't now, but you could, as of, as of you know, the other day, still do um, Premier League to, to Championship. Um so- uh, championship to Premier League, sorry. Was he not unattached? I thought he was, and that, that the deadline for that was the sixteenth anyway. I, I thought. I, I thought. Oh, Watford maybe it was. Him. Maybe it was. Okay, that makes sense. And he was unattached. He'd been released, had he, by Watford. I believe so. Um, I mean, I think. Look, uh, the, the big question with Danny Welbeck. It's another one of those. Can he stay fit? Uh, yeah. I still think Danny Welbeck's a, a Premier League striker. I mean, he he was probably never really ever more than the backup at the likes of Manchester United and Arsenal, albeit he had his moments playing for both clubs. He, you know, he had some good moments in an Arsenal shirt and scored a winner at Old Trafford in the FA Cup. He scored that last-minute winner in the game against Leicester at home the year that, that they ended up winning the title. I know it counted for naught in the end, but at the time it felt like it could be could be a seismic goal. Um, you know, he scored a, a hat-trick early on in his Arsenal career in Europe. So he had some moments, and I'm sure Khan would, would think of something he had at United, but but was never probably at, at, at quite that level. If he can stay fit and he can find his best form, I think that is quite a sneaky little um, little punt from, from Brighton because, uh, yeah, goal scoring is a problem. It showed up again yesterday. I watched most of that game, and... Um, Palace really in the second half, other than the disallowed goal we've already touched on, barely got out of their own half, and, and it was like the Alamo at times, but without Bright never sort of blowing the the door down until the last minute. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, that's quite a, quite a shrewd little pickup for for Graham Potter and Brighton, who I have to say I was worried about at the start of the season. I've seen them play twice now and thought they look really good both times. I think they'll be absolutely fine. Well, well, Palace can play like that at home with no fans in the ground. They might not feel as though they can do that in front of a packed Sellers Park, but they can do it in front of an empty Sellers Park and they need a couple of points. Yeah, especially against Brighton. That's a bit of a... I mean, I've never quite understood the rivalry, but but it's a big rivalry, Brighton and Crystal Palace. They don't like each other It's much. a motorway rivalry, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, sim- yeah. simple as that. Um, and, but yes, um, and I, I know a Crystal Palace fan, and yeah, that's that's the the big game. But the strange things, I hate Crystal Palace. <laughs> I hate a lot of teams. I was going to say, Dan, that's a long list. <laughs> but Liverpool and Crystal Palace do have a rivalry which stems back to the semi-final in 1989. Right, when okay. they beat us in a bonkers 4-3 game. Yeah. 
Um, that, was that the one Pardew scored in? It was, yes. I don't remember that. Which yeah. is why well, I don't remember. Did he do a dance? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't do a dance. No, 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 no. He oh, left that for it. Count. He left that for one of his FA Cup final collapses. Um, yeah, <laughs> Louis van Gaal wasn't watching on with that one. No. Um, <laughs> um, so, so I think, yeah, I, I think um, you're right, Dan, that Palace are finding it a bit more difficult to play that way, I think, if there was a full-packed house for that game. Yeah. Well, the the um, other result that caught my eye is I see Chris Hooten won his first game in, in charge of... Nottingham Forest, they sneaked a, a late goal at Blackburn. I'll be watching Blackburn a lot this season because Harvey Elliott's gone on loan there and uh, as you both know, he's someone I think is very talented and I think that the um, the game time will do him good. Yeah, it's, it's not a surprise to me that Chris Hutton went in and straight away Nottingham Forest looked organised. Didn't play. Sheet. Yeah, didn't play. It wasn't very exciting from certainly all the reports I saw on Sky Sports News. Um but they kept a clean sheet and got a deflected goal, I think, near the end and won 1-0. And that, that sounds like the sort of performance Chris Hutton is capable of getting from teams when he first turns up. He will get them organised. He will get them competitive. I think he's a really underrated football manager. His teams are never going to be super exciting. That is fair. If you want entertainment, he, he might not be your man. Um, but he... He always has football teams where 11 players work hard, work together, know their job. Um, and his record at that level is excellent. You know, bringing Brighton up, bringing Norwich up, um, bringing Newcastle up. Uh, he did a fantastic job. I think he got Birmingham into the playoffs, didn't he? He's one year there. So uh, when there was all sorts of financial problems um, at the club. So he, he's got a, a really, really good track record at that level. And, and if Nottingham Forest are serious about mounting a challenge, they needed to make a change. And we talked about it a couple of podcasts ago, Dan, the fact that there's something to be said, certainly in those lower levels of English football, for having someone who's been there and done it and knows the league and understands that the championship is a slog. It's 46 games and it is a slog. Um, and Chris Hewton certainly fits that, that category. And uh, I was really pleased for him. Pleased to see him back in management. I think he's a, he's a good man and he's a good manager. Um, and it, if he was a bit more flamboyant, I think he'd be rated higher than he generally is. In terms of football, or if his name was Chris Hoytonski, or well, well, I think both. I think in terms of football, but also I think in terms of personalities, he's a kind of calm, considered, sort of sensible chap. You don't see him, you know, charging up and down the touchline and ranting and raving. Uh, but he is a, a, you know, Neil Warnock always gets lots of credit for his record of promotions to the Premier League, and quite and quite right. Chris Hutton also has an extremely good record to the Premier League, uh, of promotion to the Premier League. I don't think he quite gets the same hype because he isn't Neil Warnock. He isn't, you know, he isn't a character and he isn't a, a, someone who's going to be good for a, a quote. Uh, he's, he's much more laid back, much more reserved, um, but he just produces really solid, well-structured, fundamentally sound football teams. I think the word you're looking for to describe Neil Warnock, Paul, is pranic. <laughs> and that's me. Well, there's there's the old anagram of his name, isn't there? The, yes. The did, one, did, but. But, but this is a family podcast. <laughs> um, I think we're uh, about about done now, gents. I think we've covered the weekend's activity quite widely, um, and, and certainly I enjoyed the, the Barcelona and Real Madrid stuff. That was unexpected. It wasn't kind of the 
where I thought the topic was going to go. But yeah, it was it was interesting. Um, obviously, we've got a lot of football coming up now. The, the, the all of the football all the time, as the uh, the, the Michelin web sketcher I love likes to say. Um, we've got the Champions League and the uh, the Sevilla League starting as well this week. Yeah, um, some some plenty of European football for us to watch in the week, and so be plenty for us to digest next Monday, Dan. Yeah, but, but the way things are going, I think I might go a game at centre half for Liverpool next week. <laughs> I, I, I don't think is I can. It, is it Chelsea menu as well next weekend? Have I heard that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it, 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 it is. Yeah, it's the the, the tea time uh, Saturday, I think. Well, it, seems, it seems to have almost overtaken Sunday as the prime slot, doesn't it? It does, yeah. It, mm. That that late game on Saturday seems to be the the one that's attracting sponsors, and of course the the um, the, the late game on the Saturday has been shunted to pay per view. I'm surprised, really, because Chelsea against Man United uh, hasn't been deemed a three o'clock Saturday game. <laughs> well, don't, don't bet on it being nil-nil would be my only say. I, I, I would say that I won't get good odds on both teams to score. Sorry, yeah, I well, would if get. It, does, it won't be nil-nil yeah. after the first minute, based on how our last couple of games have gone. So something will happen. I know. I know. Yeah, United. Um, I'm not getting off the flyers at the moment, but of course, um, as soon as Donny van der Beek came on, can um, the game changed. Yeah, well, indeed. I'd, I'd, I'd obviously, I know we're about to finish up. I obviously didn't see it because of uh, because of the the pay the pay per view restrictions. Um, so, in in solidarity with, with everyone else, I ref- refused to stump up. I have that uh, next Saturday. But um, but yeah, I mean, I've I've said to you to you both before. I don't, I don't know why he isn't starting for us. And when I saw that team that didn't have Pogba in, but not him, I was very confused. Um, so yeah, it's no surprise to see that we managed to uh, pull the win out the bag. After he came on, so he surely has to start at either PSG or Chelsea or both. I'm not quite sure why he's not getting in the team, but anyway, we shall see. The, the, just to, just before we finish down on the 1495 stuff, I, I think there's been there's been plenty of um, journalists on Twitter today t- um, tweeting about the fact that uh, neither the BT nor Sky Sports are willing to release the numbers that they've had yeah. purchasing the pay-per-view games. And I think we all know that the reason for that is it to be quite embarrassing <laughs> for them. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I love I love what Newcastle fans did, as I've already said. I don't love the fact that they had to donate to food banks because that shouldn't be a thing. But uh, I do like the fact that they are putting the money to good use. Instead of paying £15 to watch one game, the... That, I thought that was a really good idea, and I, I hope to see more of that in the uh, in the coming weeks. I certainly won't be spending um, fourteen ninety five to watch Liverpool against Sheffield United. No disrespect no. to Sheffield United. Nor will I. I think Arsenal and Leicester next the Sunday night game is pay per view, and again, I, I won't be paying fourteen ninety five for it. Which is a shame because I'd love to watch that because I think that would be a really good, exciting it, game. It was the one all at the end of last season at the Emirates after after lockdown was a good game of football. It was a really interesting game, um, and probably turned on the Enketia red card. But uh, yeah, I, I'm not paying fourteen ninety five. And to be honest, Sunday nights are my NFL time anyway. It's that 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 game slot, that Sunday night slot, is the one slot I could really do without Arsenal being in because um, I have other uh, routine interests at that time. Uh, I'm sure that um, the, the revival of Iraq goals won't be too far away. 
yeah, I think I think the um, the likelihood is that it's just meat and drink to those illegal streaming services. It, it must be. <laughs> you use that, and that you basically just get everything uh, on that. I think so. There are, yeah, absolutely, there are ways around it. Whether the lack of interest from consumers will force you know a, a rethink after a few weeks will remains to be seen. It could be an interesting one to would see be, what happens. It would be interesting. I, 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 they're in a difficult position now because. If they do turn around and say, right, okay, we get the message, Liverpool against Sheffield United or Arsenal Leicester next week isn't live, then any poor mug who's paid out for the games this weekend is going to be like, well, mm. yeah, I want my money back. And to be fair, I imagine that um, West Brom and Burnley fans just want the money back anyway. <laughs> nah, I'd, I'd imagine they'll stick to their guns for a bit, but then it will get to a point of if it, you know, if it isn't sort of hitting the numbers and it isn't proving viable, you know, some actually, you know, you, you, funny you mentioned it being like the the apprentice, but someone the, the bright spark who came up with it maybe getting getting fired, um, yeah. maybe maybe wanting a job with with Alan Sugar. Um, for, for, for context, I said on our WhatsApp group earlier that um, the, the 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 idea of putting. Burnley against West Brom, and no disrespect to, to either of those teams. I, I'm sure both the sets of fans would, would admit that they're not the most exciting teams to watch. I said that the, the idea of putting that behind a 14.95 paying wall is like someone off The Apprentice who would go on to get fired because it's just not good business. Now, know your market. Exactly. And, but the thing is, though, if that game was on Sky Sports, which is not free, I nearly said free, it's not free. I pay, I can't remember how much, but I pay. X pounds a month for Sky Sports. I get Virgin free. Sorry, I get BT free because I'm with Virgin. And Virgin customers get BT Sports for free if you're on the top package. So I pay X pounds a month for Sky Sports. So it's not free. But I would watch West Brom against Burnley if it was on because I've got nothing better to do. I'm working from home. And you know, it's just deeply frustrating that the best they could come up with was a pay-per-view option even if they would have come up with something like was it was it Premier League Gold you know like they had I think it was Sunday 1 o'clock games were on a pay-per-view channel and you could get a season ticket and yeah, yeah, yeah. every every game it so was it, the old days when George Graham used to be the pundit on the pay-per-view yeah it was what's Matt Smith doing <laughs> you know, it, it was, it was, it was like it was that. I, I can't remember. I, I think it was called Premier League Gold, and it was kind of like you, you paid a flat fee. Let's call it 150 quid for every game. Yeah, the season. Yeah, yeah or you could pay 25 pounds a game or whatever it was. Which and was, I think I think it averaged out certainly less than the 15 quid a game we're now being asked to stump up. Yeah, it, it would not no question you. So even if they would have proposed something like that, I would be more inclined to go for it if I could put channel eight seven six on or or whatever and watch all of the games if I wanted to instead of paying fifteen pounds a game. That's it's just wrong price point, wrong audience, bad idea. You're fired. And with that, we've we've gone on a lot longer than I intended to, though, because we've got going about pay per view TV, and who knows where the discussion will go next week. Uh, it's been a pleasure as always, gentlemen, um, and I will see you again for some more next week. Thanks very much. <laughs>